All right. Did everyone get a copy of the notes tonight? Everyone get a copy of that? I know, uh, I think we ran out. I had to print a couple more. Um, so just in case someone missed that, um, there should be a few more out there in case anyone is in need of. So after tonight, we will be halfway through um, our study. And really, over the last couple weeks, we have laid the foundation for uh, what it means to study the Bible. So if this is your first time with us um, through this, I see a couple new faces. So if you're visiting with us, this is your first time you remember of our church, this is your first time being able to make it out um, in recent weeks, um, we are in a study called The Bible is for Everyone. And uh, really, the premise of the study is exactly the title. The Bible is for everyone. The Bible is not just for smart people, not just for the intellectuals. The Bible is not just for pastors and church leaders and Sunday school teachers. The Bible is not just for children. The Bible is not just for teenagers. The Bible is not even just for Christians. Although it was primarily written to Christians, the Bible is not just for Christians. And here's, here's uh, my reasoning when I say that. Um, if you had never heard parts of the Bible before you were a Christian, you would not be a Christian today. Because we know that Romans, Paul teaches us, that faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. So I believe that I can say with confidence the Bible is for everyone. And so we spent the last couple weeks going through, we're just going to review, every week we're just going to review, we're going to relay this foundation so that your first time with us, great. If this is a reminder and a refresher for you, great. Um, but we're just going to hit the, the basics of what we're going into. Um, we're going into a type of study that we're calling inductive Bible study. And that term is not unique to me. It's not, I'm not the person that coined that by any means. It's been around for a long time. Um, and what it means is this. It means that I'm going to approach the text trying to discover what the text is saying. That means I'm not going to take my biases in with me looking to prove my point from the Scripture. I'm going to go to the Scripture and say, what has God revealed through his word in this passage? So I'm going with an idea, a heart, and a mind to understand, to learn, to know. Um, and so that is inductive versus trying to uh, put my beliefs onto the Bible. Um, and there are three steps for this, three steps for this. And here they are. Uh, and if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you can probably fill these in by yourself. The first one is observe. Observe. And observe just asks the question, what does it say? Um, by the way, um, if you would like to, if you missed a week or a couple weeks, um, we have last week's notes out in the entryway, and then we have um, both of the first two weeks uh, are up on the podcast. And so um, if you have the Monclova Road app on your smartphone, you can listen to those through the app, um, or if you prefer to listen to podcasts a different way, whatever. Um, but you can download the um, Monclova Road podcast. The Bible is for everyone. Weeks one and two are both available. Um, and I can get you those notes as well if you'd like those. You can see me for those. Um, there's some, I think it's, there's some of week two out in the lobby still as well. So if you missed something, if you want to know more about these first three points and you weren't able to be here, grab that. Um, but number one, we observe. What does it say? Um, we can't do anything else until we know what the text says. We have to be able to go to the Word, open it up, and see this is what it says. Secondly, uh, we interpret. Interpret. So then we go from what does it say to what does it mean? Um, you get a letter in the mail, right? You open it up, and first thing you look at is what does it say? You begin reading it. And then you interpret it. Sometimes you interpret as you're observing, but one way or another, you're moving from observation, oh, it's a bill from the cable company, to observation, we're past due, or the bill's coming up, or whatever it may be, right? We observe, we interpret. And then finally, we apply. We apply. So how does this affect my life? How does the thing that I'm reading about in the scripture, the interpretation of it, how does that bear weight on me? 
And we talked about that some last week. And so we'll hit some of these themes. We'll be intentionally a little bit redundant, not overly redundant, but a little bit redundant. So if this is your first week with us. Don't feel like, oh, no, I'm not going to get anything from it. No, we're going to walk through it. We're going to reiterate these steps. We're going to walk through this all together. So this week, um, this week, I've entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told. The Greatest Story Ever Told. And what we're going to talk about this week is we're going to talk about how the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, how they relate to each other, how they differ from each other, and how we can study those uh, properly, how we can study those with knowledge, with understanding. Next week, we're going to dive into biblical genres, uh, and so we're going to kind of hit the, the high points of what those look like. And so this is kind of an intro. The, these, this week, next week, will go together very well, uh, very similarly, and the weeks five and six will go together on a different topic within the same field, okay? And so as we start off, if this is the greatest story ever told, what is the story? So there's a couple of different things we've compared the Bible to so far. Um, if you remember, uh, a couple, last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Bible as a library. Um, as we read the Bible, the Bible is not just, uh, we see it as a book because it's bound, right? Or we see it digitally. Uh, I have a copy on my iPad, I have a copy on my phone, right? We, have, we see it as a book. But in reality, um, it may be more like a library because there are 66 individual books making this up from 40 authors, three different continents and languages over about 1,500 years. Another way we could say it is the Bible is almost like an anthology series where it's written by a number of different authors, but it has one primary author, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit, who has, throughout all of it, given us a unifying, uh, unifying theme and storyline. A unifying theme and storyline. So as we look at the scripture, it's authored by different people, different places, different times. At the same time, it has a miraculous degree of unity. Uh, literally, I mean miraculous degree of unity, a supernatural degree of unity, because it's authored ultimately by the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit's not contradicting himself. He's not, um, and we're going to look at some things about how, how that took place tonight so we can have an understanding when we're studying the Old Testament, when we're studying the New Testament. But all these things came together. And so here's the, the basic storyline. This is the basic storyline um, written out here in your notes. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. This is the very, very, very basic outline of Scripture. What we find is we find Genesis 1, God created. Very soon after that, Genesis 3, man fell, man sinned. All of a sudden, now we're separated from God because of this sin. And then from Genesis 3 till Jesus, they're waiting for the opportunity of redemption, right? Jesus comes, lives perfect life, the Son of God, the one that was promised, one that was sent, will push into that more in just a few minutes. Uh, he comes and he offers redemption, uh, the buying back of mankind. And now through faith, we are able to believe on him. Our sin can be forgiven. We can take on his righteousness, believing in his death, burial, resurrection, and now we can be made right with God. And now today, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for new creation. We're waiting for a second coming. We're waiting for him to come and to make all things new. And we can think if you've uh, done some deep dives into uh, eschatology, study of the end times. You might think of tribulation period and millennial reign and some of these things. These are all encapsulated in what we can call the new creation. John, at the end of Revelation, says he saw a new heaven and a new earth, new Jerusalem coming down. He saw all of these things made new. All the wrong things, all the sinful things, all the evil things, the hurtful things being made untrue and being made undone in this new creation. So this is just the general, this is, if you're flying in a plane from 30,000 feet, you're looking across the scripture, this is just a very general overview of what we're seeing. 
And so as we begin, we're going to start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Um, before we go any further, I, I want to I go into why, why should we study the Old Testament? Why should we study the Old Testament? Um, and most of us in here tonight you probably uh, understand to some degree that, I mean, you're here on a Wednesday night, right? This isn't Sunday morning, so like you're, you're here because you want to be here, right? Um, so we understand that the Old Testament is part of God's word, which is the first point of it. But understand also this. There are those, even in Christian circles, um, which I believe is the most dangerous element of this coming in, that would uh, encourage believers to, um, their words, unhitch from the Old Testament. Um, they try to say different things that would uh, try to take the edge off of how that sounds. Um, but really at the root of it is the Old Testament um, is seen as less valuable than the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament is viewed as being dated or archaic. Um, some might even point to some of the difficulties of understanding and studying um, God's justice and judgment through the Old Testament. Because there are some passages in the Old Testament um, that can feel to a modern reader uh, hard to swallow, hard to understand. Um, but at the same time, when we look at the Word of God, we see the Old Testament, we, we understand that it is part of God's Word. And I've included a few verses um, to kind of bolster this argument and to be able to uh, kind of give a full understanding of this argument. The first is this, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. And when you want to know what the Scripture is for, why it's there, this is key verse, highlight, bold. I could put this at the top of every one of our lessons, and I would probably not say it enough. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's God-breathed. It's the same word um, that oftentimes overlaps with uh, the Holy Spirit, understanding of the Holy Spirit. So God, through his Spirit, is giving this. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. So how much of Scripture is given by inspiration of God, according to Paul here? All Scripture. Um, how much Scripture does Paul have as he's writing this? He has mostly the Old Testament. Um, now, if you were to go, um, I included this. You guys are going to love this. Um, if you're as much of a Bible nerd as I am, you're going to love this. I included some uh, timelines on the back here of Old Testament and New Testament books. Okay. So he's writing this, 2 Timothy. He's writing this. Uh, and so to this point, he has most of the New Testament. But when he says all Scripture, does he say all new Scripture? What does he say? All Scripture. Later, um, he's actually going to say, actually in uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, the verse before it, which is our second point here, um, the verse, look at that verse at the very bottom of that first page. He's telling Timothy, from a child you have known the holy scriptures. If Timothy's a child now, we're rewinding 20 to 30 years, now how much of the scripture we have? Only the Old Testament, right? He doesn't have any of the New Testament at this point. And so he's saying, and what's his point here in that passage? It's number two, it's this. We study the Old Testament to gain a deeper understanding of God and his plan, of God and his plan, specifically his plan of redemption, his plan of salvation. So we study this so we can understand God and his plan. So what does he write to Timothy? That from a child you have known the holy scriptures. These same scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Pause. Do we see Jesus mentioned by name in the Old Testament? Do we see Jesus mentioned by name in the Old Testament? We see him mentioned, we do see him mentioned by a different name. What's the other name? We see Emmanuel. I'm actually going to get to that here in a few minutes, all right? Cut me off, all right? We see him mentioned by Emmanuel, right? We see him mentioned uh, as some saying like the Son of God, what we call a Christophany, which is Christ appearing before his incarnation in Matthew. 
Um, but we don't see like, when we look at Jesus' Old Testament, we don't look at it and all of a sudden it's just like, oh, well, duh, this guy named Jesus is going to come and he's going to be, and this is exactly what it's going to look like. Now, we have about 300 times in the New Testament that the authors go back and say, hey, this was talking about Jesus, and this was pointing to Jesus. Again, getting ahead of myself. I'm really excited for the content of this stuff tonight. But what does he say? He says, if you go study these scriptures before, they're going to make you wise to salvation through Jesus. You're going to get to know God. You're going to get to know his plan if you study the Old Testament. And then number three in this, uh, it teaches us about, anybody want to guess? Jesus! Not only because it's on the screens, right? All right, it teaches about Jesus. And I love this. I love this story in the book of Luke. This is fascinating. Um, and I included another, um, another selection from Luke 24 at the bottom of this page. And so this is Jesus speaking, um, and he meets these two disciples after his death, burial, resurrection. Um, they don't know yet that he's resurrected. They knew that he died and was buried And so they're walking with Jesus on this road, and this is what it says, that all of a sudden he has, they tell him, he begins to, he kind of feigns ignorance, lets them tell him about the things going on in Jerusalem and these crazy things that are happening with Jesus himself, you know? Um, And then he begins, watch this, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, what scriptures? Old Testament the things concerning himself. So Jesus, post-resurrection, is talking to these two disciples as they're walking down the road and goes back to Moses and teaches them all of these things through the prophets about himself. I mean, you want a master class on Jesus in the Old Testament taught by Jesus? I mean, can you imagine that? How fascinating that would be, how mind-blowing that would be. But what does he do? He doesn't have New Testament texts yet. He can't say, well, in about 30 years, you'll be able to open the book of Matthew. That's not what he says. He says, Isaiah said this. Moses wrote this. David penned this. And he goes back and he speaks. And when it says of Moses, this is referring to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, These are penned. These are authored by, humanly speaking, Moses. It's uh, pretty unilaterally agreed on. And so he goes and he just takes the Old Testament. And he says, hey, this had to happen. And that Jesus guy that you're talking about, he's the way to salvation. And he uses the Old Testament text to prove this. So when we come to interpreting the Old Testament, what does that need to look like? There's um, five keys, not six keys. You guys are going to be looking for that sixth one for a while. Um, Five keys to interpreting the Old Testament. First is this, context. Context. Um, Last week we said in interpretation in general, context is key. If you don't have context, um, then you're going to be working with some kind of pretext, all right? You're going to be coming in with bias. You're not going to be able to fully interpret the things you're reading if you don't have context. And so how do we gain context? Uh, letter A, ask observation and interpretation questions. Um, those are included in the notes for the first couple weeks. And so if you don't have those, I'd encourage you to get those. But just ask good observation interpretation questions. Secondly, find out where the passage falls chronologically. Find out where the passage falls chronologically. And to do that, I I want really through this, I want to equip you. I've said that every week, and I really try to make something very, very practical. So on the the last page that you have, you have on the back side, you have a timeline of the first century um, with biblical books tied in there. And so um, this covers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, cover really AD 0, right before AD 0, the birth of Jesus, to AD 30. Acts covers from about 30 to 60, um, 
in about 28 chapters. And then all of a sudden we have these epistles that tie in. Old Testament, though, you have this timeline, this chronological order of Old Testament books. And so if you want to know where the book overlaps, where it falls within your study uh, as you're opening it up, this is where it falls. So if you're not familiar with what it may be, you can look at um, overlapping areas. You can see these books. Now, it's not overly detailed to do that more. Obviously, I need more than an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Um, but you can see that a lot of these um, existed and lived and taught and preached uh, in similar times. So this gives you at least the era that they're existing in, okay? For more detailed stuff, you can find it online. You can dig through and find some other resources there. But generally speaking, that'll get you in the right direction. But we want to we wanna gain our context. And so that goes back to where is it being written? Who is it being written to? Who is writing it? Or at least some books we don't have very clear who the author is, but we know who the main characters are. We know what the plot lines look like. We know how this develops. Secondly, this. Um, look at the covenant. The covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, we have consistently God making a covenant with um, those that are following him. And specifically, there are six covenants um, that are mentioned. You might find some others that you could consider and you could qualify as. Um, but you see six predominant covenants that take place within the Old Testament. So uh, as you're interpreting, do these covenants overlap with any of the things you're studying? Um, and as this is all taking place, um, there's an element of reading the scripture that we have to understand. It's called, it's called this, progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. And that means this. Um, that means that God revealed really re revealed things progressively, all right? So it means this. At one time, there was not a book of Genesis. Everyone understand that? All right? At one time, um, so uh, for example, if we're, reading the, if we're reading about Joseph, did Joseph have a book of Genesis that he could open up and study? No. And so God had revealed himself in different ways. Some of how that was done was taking place in these covenants. And I gave you some references where you can read about these. Genesis 3, you see some of the Adamic covenant where he promises that he's going to send a Messiah coming up. Um, and all of these covenants, in one way or another, relate to Christ. So as you open up these, as you begin studying and reading these covenants, look for Christ in these covenants. Because these are all pointing to Jesus. Every single time, these are pointing and finding their completion in Jesus. We find the Adamic covenant um, that has to do with um, the, especially the post-fall world immediately after the sin. The Noahic covenant after God sends the flood and destroys the world. This is God's promise to Noah that he would not do that again, but how it would look in the future. The Abrahamic covenant, this is where he promises Abraham he's going to give him a land, seed, blessing. Um, and we know that ultimately those are fulfilled in Christ. Um, Mosaic covenant, as we have the law that is given, Israel now becomes this institution, this nation through Moses, the lawgiver, ultimately getting it from the ultimate lawgiver in Christ and in, from God, pointing as an example to Christ. Galatians informs us about that. The Davidic covenant promising that there would be a, a member of David's family to sit on the throne forever. And so we know that in the New Testament, we see Jesus, um, who is the lineage and the heritage of David. That's repeated a couple different times. Um, in fact, in a passage we're going to look at here in a few minutes. And then ultimately the new covenant, the new covenant, uh, which this is where we live, the New Testament, we could say. Uh, and so we find that this is promised, this is prophesied, and ultimately this is fulfilled in Christ. 
Um, and so we see that in covenant and testament are relatively interchangeable words. When we're looking at the New Testament, we're seeing this new covenant put in place. Um, in Jeremiah, he, God promises, I'm going to take a heart of stone out of you, and I'm going to put into you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you new. And we find these things just throughout the New Testament. So these are just, I'm giving you some direction to, to look at as you're studying these. Number three, look at the canon. Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Um, and I actually have, I left one of my little notes in there, so define canon. So who wants to define canon? Um, I'm sure there are a couple people in here you could define, you could define that. Um, it's a thing that you shoot stuff out of, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a camera brand. Um, it's, no. So when we speak of the canon biblically, what that is, is that's the 66 books that make up the Bible. Um, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time delving into where we got those books from or how those books are decided on. I mean, that's a whole lecture in and of itself, um, if not a few of them. Um, but we have these 66 books that the that Christians have followed, that Christians have believed since very early on, since very early descendants, first century, coming into the beginning of the second century, a lot of this was nailed down, was hammered out, and Christians from almost exactly the time of the apostles have been reading those same 66 books of the Bible. They've been translated into uh, hundreds of different languages, and it's been preserved since then. Uh, but look at the canon of Scripture. So when I say canon, I'm just doing a C to make it follow, Okay. What we're doing is this. A, we're looking at the overlap with other Old Testament books, okay? Which, again, go back to that timeline that we just looked at. The overlap with other Old Testament books. How do other books relate to this? Secondly, um, and I, I love this. I love this, and so I hope you guys will love this as much as I do. Um, look where it's quoted in the New Testament. If you're studying an Old Testament book, look to see if it's quoted in the New Testament. Um, how many of you guys have a cross-reference, some kind of cross-reference Bible that you own or you have somewhere you've seen those, where you open up the text and you can see other um, verses that are linked to? And so what you can do is you can follow that cross-reference to see if there are other books in the Old Testament or the New Testament may inform on some of those themes. What, I've, what I have, I, I found this resource, someone else had put it together and they said distribute as much as you want, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so what I did is I took this link. I edited it a little bit because of the clarity of it. I didn't love their formatting. So I took it. Um, and if you follow this link, if you go type this in on your browser, on your phone, you can type this in on your browser. If you want to do it right now, you're welcome to do it right now. Um, if you want to go home, type this into your computer, whatever. Um, the URL is case sensitive, so don't capitalize anything or it's not going to work right. If you go to this link, what you're going to find is you're going to find a Google spreadsheet. Uh, on that Google spreadsheet, there are actually two pages, one sorted by Old Testament, one sorted by New Testament. Um, and it's a, I made it a public document. You can go to that link, and what it has is it has every time that the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. So if you want to know, hey, is this quoted somewhere? And now I only included, there's, I, I didn't build this list. They only included, and I think it's wise, only includes quotes, direct quotes. So it doesn't include like this is alluding to or this is an idea or a theme. Like that list would be just go read the New Testament. Um, like that's, I, that's too much of a list. Um, but these are direct quotes. And what you're going to find is there are over 300 direct quotes in the New Testament from Old Testament scriptures. Um, I see some of you guys looking at phones and stuff like that, which is awesome. I love this resource. I've been using it since I found it. Um, I found it about a month ago, and I've been waiting to give it out, right? So, um, but I love this. I hope you'll utilize this. And so what you can do is you can say, I'm reading the book of Genesis, or I'm reading Genesis chapter number four, whatever, pick a chapter. And then you can go to this spreadsheet and you can say, if I'm sorting by the Old Testament, saying Genesis four, is there anywhere in the New Testament that this is quoted? Then you can go to the New Testament author and you can say, how did they see this text? What were they pulling out of it? What did they notice? Um, and same thing if you're studying a New Testament book and you want to know, um, there's another sheet, um, there's two sheets on it that are separated. One's Old Testament, sort of one's New Testament. So you can say, I'm studying the book of John. 
How many times is the Old Testament quoted in the book of John? And you can go there, use that resource, study that. I hope that's a tool. Go there, bookmark it. I'm going to leave it alone. It'll exist for as long as I have my Google account. So hopefully till I die or Google takes over the world or something. So, so that's there. I hope you'll use that. Because what we want to do is we want to find how do the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament? You want a good look at Old Testament interpretation? Go to the scripture. And then uh, last one, um, the Old Testament laws. This is a sticking point for some people. Um, the best way I can say it is this. Um, look at how it's repeated or reinstated in the New Testament. You want to know what an Old Testament law looks like? Go to the New Testament look for the interpretation. Um, the Old Testament, very, very often, Jesus, so what does Jesus say? He says about murder. He says, he, he, first of all, he reinforms and he uh, confirms the first, the main two pillars of the law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus confirmed those, okay? Um, Jesus goes on in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 through 7. He confirms a lot of these things. He says he that looks uh, on a woman uh, lust after her in his heart. He's committed adultery in his heart already. So he even ups the ante on the law, right? Um, and so we see that he that hates his brother without a cause. He's a murderer in his heart. Um, and so he takes these things and he expounds on them. Um, when it comes to our dietary law, why don't Christians, why do Christians eat pork and shellfish when the Jews weren't allowed to do that? Well, uh, we see in the book of Acts that Peter has this vision and that he's told not to call unclean the things that God has made clean. Take Peter, kill, rise Peter, kill and eat, right? And so we see that God has very clearly and explicitly said that's not something for you to follow. Um, and so there are other portions of that. Study those throughout the New Testament. Um, number four, the character of God. The character. So we're looking for context, covenant, canon, the character of God. We study the word of God to know the God of the word. And I included that just a second point right under there in uh, big green letters, right? Because that's so important. We study the word of God to know the God of the word. Um, you can say the Bible is for us, um, but the Bible's not about us. The Bible's about him. It's for us, Absolutely. Um, we see that it's profitable for all of these things we just read in 2 Timothy, but it's about him. And so we study the word of God to know the God of the word. Um, and so I put letter B here. Beware of oversimplifying by, overlooking, by only looking for do's and don'ts. If you're looking for um, a list of do this, don't do this, the Bible's probably not the book for you. Does the Bible include laws and is there certain things that God expects? Does God have a certain standard of morality? Yes, you will find that. If that's the primary thing you're looking for, that's this thing that we call legalism, um, and good luck with that, all right? Um, that's not what it's about. It's about God first and foremost, and as we come to know God, it, we are driven by grace to obey him. We're not forced into obedience. We are freed to obedience, all right? Does that say, oh, just go, am I saying you have license, liberty, go do however you, that's, you're not listening if that's what you're getting, okay? No, we're informed first and foremost on who God is. And then uh, finally, number five, Christ. Christ. Look for how this either A, points to Christ. So how is this saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming? How is this thing that exists um, in shadow fulfilled in substance in Christ? Um, and the book of Hebrews is a wonderful, uh, many of us, we studied this together just recently. The book of Hebrews is just this wealth of information about that point. How is Christ the fulfillment of the Old Testament? So those are the C's that we are looking for. Um, and, and I love this. I love this here. Look at Luke 24, verses 44 through 40, 44 and 45. This is the same passage, just uh, about 15 verses later. He said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And this is important because this is 
We'll talk about this more next week. Um, but this is really the main division of the Old Testament. When they look at the, they refer to the Old Testament as a whole as the scriptures. And then they're going to call law, first five books, prophets, um, which is a lot of the history as well as the prophetical writings, uh, and the songs. So this is poetry, wisdom, literature, things like that. This is the Old Testament. This is the whole of this. They're primary categorizations of the Old Testament. Then he, watched this, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. We said this is our goal here, right? The goal of interpretation is to understand the scriptures. For so long, they had seen the scriptures, they had read the scriptures, they had known the scriptures, but they didn't have understanding of the scriptures. And so Jesus now, he expounds them and says, hey, I'm the fulfillment of this. I'm the perfection of this. I'm the completion of this. And he helped them uh, to be able to understand these things. So that's, in a nutshell, the Old Testament. And we're going to hit that in, in just a minute. We're going to tie it together with some of the New Testament understanding in our practice passages tonight. Okay? Um, the New Testament. The New Testament. And we're going to just really quickly hit the genres. We'll press into a couple of them a little more next week. Um, but I'll, you have to have an overview when it comes to understanding the New Testament. Um, now, the New Testament is really, really interesting. Um, again, I left a note in here for you. Um, all, the, all of these were written within one generation. All of these texts were written within from basically uh, 80, 50-ish, was like the first ones, to about 80, 90. So one generation, all of the New Testament is written. Old Testament spaced out over 1,400, 1,500 years. New Testament is less than, at most, 50 years from, one, from start to finish, okay? Um, that being said, it removes some of the complexities of the Old Testament. So this one is not quite as heavy as the Old Testament side of it because, A, we already hit some of those high points that are going to correlate. B, uh, it's just it's a lot smaller time frame, okay? So we don't have to think about what empire is ruling because the answer is Rome for all of them, okay? Um, there are other contexts, other pieces. Number one, let me get this first. Number one is the Gospels, the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. Um, the Gospels all contain the life and words and acts of Jesus. Um, the book of Acts overlaps just slightly with the Gospels. In chapter number one, we have Jesus' words, and then it's his ascension. And so apostles are kind of on your own. It's, you know, the sequel to the Gospels. Which brings us into the second point here is church history, um, is the book of Acts. So we have the Gospels, um, which are the first four books. Church history, which is a standalone book of the book of Acts. It's the only one we have. Um, third, we have the epistles. Um, epistles just being a fancy word for letters. Um, and so these are writings that are given specifically to um, a, a congregation or a people group or an individual. And so these are letters that are being written as correspondence um, from mostly Paul, um, but not exclusively Paul. You have Paul, John, um, James, Jude, Peter, um, that all, as well as the book of Hebrews, whoever you think wrote that. Um, and so you have basically about six um, authors of these epistles. Um, primarily being, also is really cool to note, primarily these epistle writers are all firsthand eyewitnesses of Jesus. Um, Paul's account being his conversion on the roads to Damascus, which we can read about in Acts 9. But the rest of them, Peter, Paul, uh, Jude, James, um, James being the brother of Jesus, these are all people who saw Jesus for themselves. The only possible exception would be Hebrews, depending on who you think wrote it. No time for that. All right. Uh, number four, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature, um, which this is, again, this is a standalone. This is the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, there are only two portions of Scripture that we would really consider heavy apocalyptic, um, Revelation and parts of Daniel. Um, again, I'm getting way too far ahead of myself. 
Um, but this is, this is a standalone. The first part of the Revelation, actually, and the Revelation as a whole, could kind of fit into the epistles because it's actually, fun fact, written to seven churches. Romans isn't just like this vague thing. Like he's just like, hey, write this and shove it under a rock somewhere. This is written to seven churches. Um, at the very beginning, gives some very epistle-like writing. It almost looks similar to like Paul's writing um, at the very beginning with all this instruction. And then it moves on to what we call apocalyptic literature. Um, we're only going to talk about two of these tonight. We'll press into the other two a little bit next week. Um, first of all, um, look at the Gospels. The Gospels. Um, and this, this intro is in my jargon, so I apologize that I even left this in here. But hey, if you can figure out what it means, good for you. Um, so, just kidding. Um, it's my shorthand. So basically this. As we come into the Gospels, understand, you and I, we just hit Old Testament in 30 minutes, okay? Um, Old Testament took 1,500 years to unfold. And then there's a four-year gap. Or actually, it took longer than that to unfold from first writing to the end. It took that. Then there's a 400, three to 400 year gap. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this gap, this is um, the longest time in the founding of Israel that God is just silent. The question here that's resonating is where is God? Where is God? He promised he would be here. He promised he would fulfill. He promised he would save. Yahweh promised. Yahweh promised. Where is Yahweh? Where is Yahweh? Where is Yahweh? And so this is all taking place in this gap time. Then we come to Matthew, which is the first of the Gospels recorded, and probably the first of the Gospels written. Um, and so we come to the book of Matthew here, and Matthew breaks the tension. Because understand that without the New Testament, the Old Testament is unfulfilled and it's incomplete. It's unfulfilled and it's incomplete. It's leaving this people waiting. Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to come. From all the way from Genesis chapter number three, Messiah is going to come. He's going to come. He's going to bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to save his people. Messiah is going to come. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to. But there's no Messiah. And now God's not speaking. Like, God, are, are you running from us? God, are you hiding yourself from us? God, where are you? And Matthew chapter 1 breaks the tension in a beautiful way. Because Matthew chapter 1 introduces us to Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. God with us. And understand this, in that very name, in that very name is a claim to deity. It's a claim to being God. Jesus is not only the son of God, he's God with us. And so as the people were looking forward to this, now the question becomes, who's with us? God or God with us? The answer to that, yes. God is with us in God with us, in Emmanuel. The name Jesus, he's named Jesus because he would save his people from his sins. That The name Jesus, it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Who saves? Yahweh saves or Yahweh? Yes. God's saving his people through his son who's come incarnate. The same, John would say it this way, and all three of them have a beautiful, all three of the gospels have a unique but beautiful introduction to who Jesus is, to breaking the silence. John said it this way, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And it was life. Life was the light of men. Jump down to verse number 14. It says this, the word, verse number one to verse number 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the book of 1 John, John would continue to write, and he would say it this way. He would say, our hands have handled of the word of life. We saw him. 
We knew him. We were waiting for him for years. Our ancestors, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, they just waited and waited and waited. And they, they didn't see him, but, but we saw him and our hands have handled of the word of life. And so the Gospels, where it all begins, if we don't have an understanding of the Gospels, we're going to struggle to understand the rest of the New Testament because the rest of the New Testament is all built on the foundation of the Gospels, Okay. So as we come to the Gospels, what are our two primary questions? Two primary questions. First of all, this. What does it tell me about? Anyone want to guess? Jesus, right? What does it tell me about Jesus? Do you guys sense a theme? Anyone sense a theme? All right. All right. What does it tell me about Jesus? Cassandra treated it. It was on the screens. What does it tell me about Jesus? All right. So it tells, me, it tells us so much. It tells us, in fact, everything we need to know. And so it tells us what he did. It tells us what he taught. It tells us who he is. These are all revealed to us within that. Secondarily, all right, so primary, and we're going to talk about this pattern here in just a minute with the epistles as well. Primarily, who Jesus is. Secondarily, how should I respond? So this is truth about who Jesus is. Now, how do I respond to who Jesus is? If this Jesus guy is who he says he is, how do I respond to him? And that's the most important question that you can ever ask and that you can ever answer. If Jesus is who he says he is, how you respond to him is the most important decision of your life. All of a sudden, this, doesn't be, this isn't just some radical thing anymore. This isn't just some religious mumbo-jumbo. This is, if Jesus is a real person and is who he claims to be, what am I going to do about it? And that's why Paul would say it this way. What will you do with Jesus Christ? That's his, uh, that's his question. What, will, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be his disciple? And what responses um, do I see in the text? How do others respond to Jesus? What are responses that Jesus prays and commends um, versus there are some that we see that this is not how you should respond, okay? Um, so I want to practice this together. I give you, I've given you a little bit of a chunk of Scripture. So I want to take, I want to take um, five, six minutes to go through this because I think there are some important things here. I know it's a, a chunk here. Um, it's, about, it's about a little over a page. There are a couple notes here that I gave. And I want to give you this to start off with, give you a couple things. Um, I left out a passage, um, Luke 3, 23 to 37. So I left out a gap. So there's a gap in here in text. You'll see it goes from 22 to 37, or 38, I'm sorry. Um, these contain genealogies. Very important, awesome study. Not the point that I want to get to you today. So you feel free to take it home and go with it. Um, I want to hit just one portion of this genealogy, okay? Um, note two, look for repeated words. Look for connection between the chapters, and look for um, Old Testament ideas in these passages, okay, or in these, in these verses, all right? Um, so use some of these tools. Let's take, I'm going to say five minutes, um, and let's walk through this, and then we'll come back, and we'll, we'll talk through a couple things here. And remember to keep in mind those application points that we just talked about here when we talk about applying the Gospels, primary application versus secondary application, okay? Take five or six minutes. Work with someone nearby. If, you, if you're looking, you're trying to figure out questions, and you have Trying to get some other thoughts, feel free to bounce stuff off of people nearby, talk, do whatever you need to do. Um, let's take, like I said, about five minutes and let's do that. Um, look, for, look for some uh, repeated phrases as something else to keep in mind. Um, there are phrases that overlap between all three selections. If you look at the two different portions of um, Luke 3 and the portion of Luke 4, you find uh, a couple phrases, a couple words being used over and over and over again. So keep some of those in mind as you're continuing to read through. Another two, two or three minutes. Also, take-home stuff is going to relate to the same theme and same passage. So um, I'll give you some direction, some food for thought there.
Yeah, about another 60 seconds and we're gonna wrap up. Feel free to take through this. We're not gonna have time to cover all of it. There'll be plenty of room left for you to study this on your own, I swear. Because um, this is, I know this is like speed round, Bible interpretation, so. Okay, um, so as we jump into this, this is, this is my caveat. Follow me with our stages, observation, interpretation, application, okay? So don't just, as we begin, um, don't just jump straight into application. Let's, let's walk this path together. What are some things uh, of note? What are some things that we observe, some themes, some repetitions? Uh, what are some things that we see within this selection of verses? So remember, this is observation, so it's not, there's not wrong answers. These are just, what do we see within the text, okay? So we're not interpreting yet. We're not saying, what does this mean? We're just saying, what does it say, okay? I saw a hand. What do you got? Okay. So how many times do we see, how many times do we see uh, the phrase son of, or the, the word son used within these? A lot, right? Um, can we just all say a lot, right? A lot of times son is used. Does anyone want to guess what the theme of this selection is? The sonship of Jesus. That's the main theme uh, of these pieces. So awesome job right out of the gate. Um, so we see son just on repeat, son, 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 right? So where's the first time that we see son? Verse 22 of chapter 3, right? Um, and so who is that referring to? And who is, and who's, so it's referring to Jesus, and then who's speaking? God is speaking, right? And then what's the second time um, that we, we, see, we see son used? Okay, now we have, a, all of a sudden we have a genealogy, right? So we have son, 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 all right? Um, so we won't go into every single time of those, uh, but we know Jesus, son of God, who's also contrasted as being and called the son of God. Adam is. And this is actually, this is really interesting, because Adam is not called the son of God a lot in scripture. There are a few places that this word is used, this being one of them. So all of a sudden we have the son of, so in Luke 2, or 3, I'm sorry, Luke 3, we have two people being called the son of God. All right? If it sounds noteworthy, it's because it is, all right? In Luke chapter number four, how do we see the son, of, the son being used? What's the context that that word is being used? Yes, you're hitting interpretation. Let's back up half a step because you are, yes, it is showing uh, his power, his authority. We're going to hit this in just a second. Specifically, look for that word son, okay? Look for that word son. Look for the word, not just the idea. Look for the word son. It's used at least twice within this within Luke 4. What, what do you see? Right, Satan's questioning this. If you are the son of God, what's the word that's being used? Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the devil doing to him? We, verse number two is, gives us a word. He's tempting him, right? Okay, so Genesis, the very beginning of Adam's life, uh, what do we know that Satan came and Satan did to Adam? Well, he went, he went through Eve, right? But ultimately, ultimately, he's still the author of it, right? Um, so so what is, what's happening to Adam in Genesis chapter number three? He is being, how does Adam respond to the temptation? The fall, right? Jesus now being tempted, son of God, contrast here. Jesus being tempted, how does Jesus respond? He overcomes, right? He overcomes. And we see that he overcomes. What's beautiful is that he overcomes using scripture, right? Um, he doesn't overcome just saying, ah, ah, I'm the son of God. I don't have to listen to you. Get out of here, right? No, what does he say? He actually uses scripture. All right, so primarily, first and foremost, what do we see? We see Jesus. 
This is being written to prove that he is the Christ, the better Adam, the better son. Now, secondarily, could we say he is effective in overcoming his temptation? Does he give us a pattern of that kind of behavior? Yeah. But we have to understand one's primary, one's secondary. Okay? Because Jesus has overcome as the better son, there are a lot of implications that come out of that. I'm not going to press into all of them because I'm going to let you do that and take home in just a minute, okay? But what do we see here? All of a sudden, we see Jesus. We see him as the better son. We see him fighting, overcoming temptation. We see this as a preamble to what he's ultimately going to do on the cross in the final victory over death and hell. And so Luke here is writing to Greeks primarily. He's writing to people that are educated, they're philosophers, they've studied man, they know what Jews believe about the origin of man. And so they go back to, and they go back to Adam as that son of God. And they say this is the better son. And this is the theme, really one of the themes of the book of Luke, the son of man and the son of God, the sonship of Christ. I'm going to push pause on that because I'm going to let you dig into that for yourself. Um, So if you have questions afterwards, you can feel free to ask them, and I'm probably going to tell you to go study the passages that I'm giving you to take home, all right? So um, let's jump here to the next section, the epistles, the epistles, and then we're done. So we're just going to look at tonight, gospels, epistles. We're going to pause in the book of history, Acts. We're going to pause on the apocalyptic stuff um, because that one in and of itself is going to take some time. Um, The epistles. As we're interpreting epistles, follow the authors, first of all, follow the authors' interpretations of the Gospels. Because you know what the epistles are expounding on? The Gospels. They all go back to what should you do with Jesus. If you read the epistles and you never read the Gospels, you're going to say, wow, that Jesus guy is pretty cool. Who is he? Because they're built on the foundation of the Old Testament and the Gospels. And so the epistles are following out of who Jesus was, him being who he said he was. So as you look at these, look at who was slash is, because we know he's still alive, um, but at the same time, we saw saw him um, embody, we saw him in his incarnation. So who was, is, in reality, Jesus? How does his life affect me? How does who he is, how does that bear weight on me? And that's what we're going to find as a theme throughout the epistles. Um, And then secondly, we see this. Take note of what we call the indicative imperative pattern. Um, And if you study the book of Hebrews uh, with us, indicative imperative is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. But it's not exclusive to Hebrews. In fact, it's in the majority of the the epistles, not the gospel of the epistles. Um, But what we see is that each epistle, each author writes a little bit differently. Um, So Paul in the book of Romans, in the book of whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, if you believe it to be Paul, whoever, uh, you have the very beginning of the book, the first two-thirds of it, are, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. The last third of it is, here's how to respond to what's true. And so we just see that theme within the, some of these longer books. So these shorter books, um, we find this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, we're going to look at in a second. But here's what we're going to find. We're going to find indicative. This is what is true. What is true, what is true about God, what's true about what he has done for me. What is true? And then imperative is this, how I respond to truth. Always be looking for the imperative indicative connection. Um, because it, understand this, if we start going around and we just have a bunch of imperatives, um, if we just have a bunch of um, this is what to do, this is what to do, and it's not rooted in any kind of truth, you know what we're resorting back to? Once again, we're going back to legalism. Bad Bible interpretation will lead you into legalism, a series of do's and don'ts. Now, does God have laws? Yes. Does God have morality? Yes. 
Those are all rooted in, first and foremost, the grace of God, and the grace of God sets us free to follow him, doesn't compel us by force into followership. And so look at this pattern. What is true? How do I respond? 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, we find it just within these couple verses by themselves. And some of the authors, this is how they write, more than overflowing with um, indicative and then transition to imperative. A lot of the epistle writers will do a segment of uh, indicative then a segment of imperative back and forth. Look at verse 15. As he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. And so we actually see an appeal to Old Testament text here as well. So what's the indicative? What's the thing that is true? God is holy, right? First and foremost, God is holy. So how do I respond? What's the imperative now? Be holy. Does God say, I'm not holy, but you should be holy? No, God says, be holy because I'm holy. So just in this microcosm, we see he says this thing, but it's connected to who God is. He says this, but it's, it's in response to who God is. All right, study at home. Um, selected passages um, from Genesis 3 and Romans 5 are attached. Uh, take time to study these passages, and you actually have two weeks, okay? So it's plenty of time, right? You got two weeks because we're not meeting next week. Two weeks. Um, take some time to study these passages in connection with um, Luke what, 3 through 5. I don't know what's wrong with me tonight. I'm all over typos. My bad. All right. It should be 3 and 4. Um, 3 and 4, this is the other passages that we studied in here. Um, so take time to study Genesis 3, Romans 5, and Luke 3 and 4. Um, look for the common themes. Um, what do you think is a theme that we're going to find within those things? Jesus, right? Um, specifically, we're going to see sonship. Um, and if you look at it, here's the beautiful thing, okay? Here's how I would encourage you to study it. Go to Genesis 3. Read through, study, get an understanding of Genesis 3. Go to Luke. Go to Luke 3 and 4, those passages um, from baptism through the temptation. Study those. Then jump to Romans 5. And so what we're doing is moving from Old Testament to Jesus to how does the New Testament author Paul correlate these two passages. And so what it's going to do is this will give you the opportunity to sit in the lens of first century believer and look at the Old Testament text, then line that up with how Jesus fulfills it, and then you can go and you can find out how Paul went in and found application. See, if you find some of those same things, look at how Paul expounds on those things and reveals some of these truths in a really, really deep way. Um, this is a study that I've taken some time, and so I've included both of those other passages. So Genesis 3 right here, Romans 5, um, 12 through 19 is your primary text with that. Um, there are other portions of, but that's the meat of that. So feel free if you want to study with your Bible at home and look at the whole chapter. By all means, I will not stop you. And then um, don't forget those two resources. We have this paper here that gives us the timelines of Old and New Testament. And then that link um, is yours. I hope you will utilize it. Um, I hope you will take advantage of it. It's free. There's no passwords. Type in that URL, um, and it's going to pull you up into um, that comparison sheet, okay? Um, let's go. Let's pray, and it's time to get out of here. Father, we are grateful that we can come.